continuing our series in 2 Corinthians. So if you could have your Bibles open to today's passage, we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to chapter 7, verse 1. If you have our church newsletter, our corner post, it can be found there. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 1. This is God's word. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says in the time of my favor, I heard you, and the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry would not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, And in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will be with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore come out from them and separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can meet together to be able to come before you this Lord's Day, to be able to give you our worship, to give you our praise, to give you our thanks. Father, we thank you that we can come before you now and to be able to hear from your word. Our Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be with us. Prepare our hearts, open up our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts, 
Uh, Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would be with each of us. And Father, um, we pray, Lord, that your word would not return to you empty, but would do exactly what you have designed it to do this Lord's day. Uh, Father, I pray also be with me, your servant, as I preach your word now. And Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the last time you met someone new, how did you get to know them? Uh, what questions were exchanged? Uh, when we meet someone new, uh, we typically ask them the same questions we ask everyone. Uh, what do you do for work? Uh, tell me about your family. Where are you from? Uh, when I meet another Christian, uh, one of the first questions I like asking them is, how did you come to know the Lord Jesus? A couple of months ago, I was speaking with a woman, and she told me how she grew up in the faith. Uh, both her parents were Christians, and she grew up always knowing about Jesus. But she shared that her faith came alive in her early 20s, after the death of her parents. In her grief, she found a new comfort, a new joy in knowing Jesus. That despite her heartaches, despite her loss, she found a deeper love in Jesus and the comfort of knowing Him and the hope that she had in Him. And as we talked, as she lamented, as she lamented that her children were entering a similar age, that they were becoming young adults. And while they also grew up knowing Jesus, they, unlike her, hadn't found a joy in Him. They hadn't embraced the gospel like she did. And she was deeply concerned for them. I imagine there are many here today in church who have family members who have not embraced the gospel. There may be even parents here who have concerns for their children, both young and old. Concerns their children have not grown up knowing Jesus. They have heard the gospel, but perhaps they have received the grace of God in vain. They are familiar with the scriptures. They are familiar with what Jesus has done. But the gospel, the work of Christ, it's made no lasting impact on their lives. In our passage today from 2 Corinthians, this is Paul's concern. Paul's fear, despite his visits, despite his letters, is that his message may have fallen on deaf ears. His fear is that his beloved Corinthians may have received the grace of God in vain. That the gospel has made no lasting impact on their lives. So he urges the Corinthians, he as God's ambassador, to embrace the gospel. He says to them, verse 2, that now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Friends, at the end of chapter 4, we were reminded that we have an, an eternal hope. In chapter 5, we had a beautiful summary of the gospel, that in Christ, reconciliation has come. In Christ, God is reconciling the world to Himself. 
The old is gone, the new is here. Christ has come to bring life and life to the full. And he has given to those who believe in him the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. In Christ, those who have been reconciled have already become a new creation. They have been given life. They have been given hope. They have been given salvation. But in his letter to his beloved Corinthians, these Corinthians have come to a crossroads. Paul is concerned whether they have indeed embraced the gospel uh, will they follow the gospel? Will they follow Paul and his message? Or will these Corinthians follow the teaching of others? Will they receive the grace of God in vain? Or will they embrace the gospel message? In our letter today, Paul's plea is to embrace the gospel, to embrace his message, to embrace Christ. And from our passage today, we're going to be working from three points. Our first is Paul's commendation from verses 3 to 10. Our second is Paul's concern, verses 11 to 13. And then third, Paul's charge from verses 14 to chapter 7, verse 1. Let's look at together at what Paul says now in verses 3 and 4. He says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not, will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Our Paul has taken great pride in his ministry, that they haven't put a stumbling block in front of the Corinthians, but have shown them what gospel ministry looks like. They have shown by their very lives what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But what Paul says next isn't quite what we expect. Now normally, friends, if we were to commend our position to someone, for others to embrace it, to follow us and our example, we would want to convince them why it is good and profitable to follow us to share with us what we're doing. Uh, for example, uh, it's been a few years since I've played, but I used to play rugby. And if you wanted me to play for your rugby team, you would tell me about the joys of playing, the warm community, and the strengths of your team. Uh, but you would be slow to tell me the commitment that is needed, the struggles of training, the grueling conditions of playing on a muddy, wet field, the potential injuries, and the likelihood of getting a concussion. Uh, I'm pretty sure I had one for every year I played, but I don't remember. <laughs> uh, but if you wanted me to play again, uh, you wouldn't tell me about the struggles of playing. You would tell me about the joys. Uh, and this is what perhaps the super apostles have done in regards to their message. Uh, they have shared the benefits and the joys of following them, but not Paul. As he commends the gospel, he tells the Corinthians of his struggles. Look what he says in verses 4 and 5. 
that he has endured great afflictions, hardships and distresses, beatings, imprisonment, riots, hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. His commendation is that living for Jesus isn't easy. And as Christians, we shouldn't expect it to be. As Martin Luther once said, how can we expect a bed of roses when our Savior wore a crown of thorns? No one said that the Christian life is going to be easy. J.C. Ryle in his book Holiness said that every Christian must count the cost of following Jesus. And Paul commends to us here today that the cost is worth it. In verses 6 to 10, Paul says that the Christian life comes with the tools necessary to overcome great difficulties, the means to overcome the struggles that are before us. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he had told them that there is no trial that can overtake them that is unknown to man, that there is nothing new under the sun that the Christian has not already overcome. We may experience brokenness, Sadness, grief, various trials, temptations, and even persecutions. As the Christian lies in this bed of thorns, these thorns are not unfamiliar to us. Christians have dealt and overcome them many times over. And how? How have we overcome them? Well, through a means that is stronger than our trials. And Paul speaks of the graces that we have been given. We have been empowered by God. We have been given His Spirit. We have been given the weapons of righteousness. Paul, time and time again, speaks of his weaknesses. But his great boast, his great boast is the power of Christ that is at work within him. Paul says that the Christian will go through ups and downs, through both glory and dishonor. But no matter the trial, no matter what comes our way, we possess everything and more through the hope that we have in Christ. So as Paul speaks to the Corinthians, he takes pride in his ministry because his boast is not of himself. His boast, his commendation... It's Christ. Remember what Paul said in chapter 4 and 5? We have a hope that is unseen. A hope of renewal. A hope of eternity. And being in the presence of God where sin and death will be done away with. And where life is given to the full. Paul's great boast. His great hope. It's Christ. Friends, can I say, what we hope for determines how we live. What we hope for determines how we live. If we as Christians fix our eyes on the hope that has been attained for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then we are to live out that hope, as Paul says, no longer living for ourselves but Him who died for us. To live in this present age with our eyes fixed on eternity. 
But if we aren't fixing our eyes on eternity, it means that we have placed our hope into something else. If we aren't living for Jesus, then we're living for something else. Do any of us have our eyes gazing upon the things of this world? Are we living for ourselves? Are our eyes fixed on the things that are perishing? The temporary comforts and fleeting desires of this world? The gospel, the gospel, the hope that the Christian has been given in Christ should compel us. It should compel us to live for him. Paul's commendation is Christ. We fix our eyes on what is unseen. And what is unseen is eternal. That is our great hope. That is our great boast. We boast in Christ and what He has done. What He has attained for us. Friends, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. He exhorts the church to embrace the gospel. He pleads with them, do not receive God's grace in vain. But as Paul looks at this church, he's filled with concern. He is filled with concern. He's concerned because the Corinthians appear to be receiving the grace of God in vain. Paul is concerned because the Corinthians are withholding their love. He says to them, verse 11 and 12, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. Paul has loved them as a father loves his children. And so a love in return would be expected. But he says, you have withheld your affections from us. We who have loved you, we who have served you. Paul says that he has spoken to them freely, that he has not hidden anything about him or his message from them. He has loved them. He has opened his heart to them. But something prevents the Corinthians from accepting Paul and his companions, from loving them. Our friends, if we struggle at all to love our fellow brothers and sisters, to love them as Christ loved them, we should be asking the question, what is preventing us from loving them? Is there sin within us? Sin which is preventing us from loving our fellow brothers and sisters. To love Christ is to love his body. It's to love the church. In Acts chapter 9, before Paul was converted, he was struck down by a great light, and he heard the Lord Jesus speaking to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul is familiar with persecuting the body of Christ. He knows what it means to be without Christ. But as he writes this letter, he now knows what it means to be in Christ. And what the outflowing graces which flow from Christ's work are. Those graces which enable us to love Christ and His church, to serve Christ 
and his church. And the Apostle John wrote, to not love the body, to not love your brothers and sisters, is to withhold your love and affections from Christ. Paul, in many ways, as he addresses his concerns here, is saying to withhold your affections and love from us is a sign that you have perhaps received the gospel in vain. That is why Paul is so concerned. Their actions betrayed the condition of their hearts. These Corinthians are cautious of Paul and his message. And to reject Paul and his message would be to reject Christ and the gospel. Paul is saying, we have loved you. No matter the trial, no matter the struggle, we have loved you. We have not withheld our affections from you, but you have from us. And friends, as we hear these words, do these words strike a chord within our hearts? Have we withheld Christ's love from any of our brothers or sisters? Have we failed to love, knowing how much Christ loved us? There is a teaching that resonates within me because I know I can fall into this trap so easily. It's when Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own? I don't know about you. But I know I can be quick to look at the faults of others rather than my own. I see the speck of fault in others. While God, when he looks at me, he sees a plank. And I shudder to think what the size of that plank could be. But yet God, who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ Jesus. He reconciled us through the work of Jesus. He saved us. And if Christ loved us, while we were walking around blind with planks in our eyes, how can we then not love those whom Christ died for? Is there perhaps sin? Sin in our life that is preventing us from loving them? Is there sin in our life preventing us from embracing the gospel as we should? If there is sin that is preventing us from loving Christ, from serving Him, then we need to repent. Paul, in his concern, cries out to us and says, Open wide your hearts. Do not receive the grace of God in vain, but embrace the gospel. Embrace the message that he's speaking. Embrace Christ. Which then leads to Paul's charge to the Corinthians. In verses 14 and 15, Paul charges the church to reject anything that may hinder their worship, which is rightfully God's. Look what he says, verses 14 and 15. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with the darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? 
Friends, I'd be one of the first to say that Christians should not marry unbelievers. Why? Because marriage should be in service to God. Marriage to a godly spouse should grow us in our sanctification. Marriage to another Christian should help produce godly offspring. But these verses, these verses, despite being used as a proof text for it, isn't about marriage. It isn't about marriage. This passage is about worship. This passage is about worship. It's about embracing the gospel. In other words, if we have been saved by Jesus, if we are a new creation, if we have been given the Spirit guaranteeing our future hope, then we should remove anything, remove anything that would hinder our devotion and worship towards God. So Paul isn't saying, don't associate with unbelievers. But he is saying, cease your fellowship. Don't be yoked together with those who oppose Christ and his message. Paul in particular is charging the Corinthians to not follow another gospel. Remember Paul's context? He is dealing with false teachers. And these super apostles are preaching a different gospel. And Paul says, don't believe them. He actually calls them unbelievers. Uh, He says, the things that these super apostles are preaching to you are not of God. They are of the darkness. They are of Satan. They have no place in your worship to God. So remove them. Get rid of them. As the Corinthians stand at this crossroads that is before them, they have two choices. Will they side with Paul and his gospel? Or the super apostles and their message? Paul is ultimately urging the Corinthians to rid themselves of these false teachers. Don't swap the good news of Jesus with with a message that will deliver nothing. They are just empty promises. But in Christ, in Christ we have been given everything. Our Old Testament reading, God spoke to his people that he would bring them out of exile. That he will gather them and that he will change them. He would give to them his spirit and he will live amongst them. And he will be our God and we will be his people. That is what God has done for the Christian. While we were a prisoner of Satan, dead in our sins and trespasses, God rescued us. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He has saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Paul then says, if we are a new creation, if we are Christ's, then verse 17, separate from them. Cease your fellowship with those who oppose Christ. No longer be united to what you once were when you were a prisoner of Satan. Under his control, you were a child of wrath. But verse 18, you have come under the care of God. Through Christ our Savior, we have become God's adopted children. 
So then Paul says to the church, chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. In other words, do not conform to the patterns of this world. Do not follow false gospels, the false teachers, the hollow redemptive stories that are offered by others. These are oftenly lies, lies of Satan. But follow Christ. You are of the light, so stop walking in darkness. You are no longer a child of Satan. You are a child of God. So if today is the day of salvation, if now is the time of the Lord's favor, then embrace the gospel. No longer live for self or the false gospels that are out there, but live for Christ. Live for the kingdom. Live for the one who raised you from there, who gave you life and an eternal hope. We may be here today, and we've heard the gospel. We've heard about Jesus. We know what he has done. But we haven't embraced it. We may be here today, we call ourselves a Christian, but our love for Him, our devotion towards Him, it isn't there. And Paul says to each of us, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Paul urges us, embrace the gospel. Do this by seeing Christ as your greatest joy, your greatest hope. Do this by loving the saints. Do this by putting to death anything that takes your devotion away from God. Our friends, we started our message today with a story about a woman who embraced the gospel. She embraced the gospel after she lost both her parents. As she could have gotten angry at God, she could have wallowed in her loss. But what she found in God was comfort. What she found in God was a father who loved her. What she found in God was a hope that death is not the end. What she found was a hope that is eternal. And with an eternal hope, the message that death has lost its sting and hope and life is given to all who believe. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the great message, great message of the gospel, where hope and life is found in our Lord and Savior Jesus. Our Father, so often we can find ourselves as we look at the world around us, that we, we can forget that you are there. We can forget the great hope that we have in him. So Father, we pray by your spirit, continue to convict us continue to remind us day by day of the great hope that we have in Jesus, an eternal hope that is unseen, but is at work still within us. We see that through the Spirit that is at work within us. So, Father, we pray by your Spirit, continue to work in our lives, continue to change and transform us. Our Father, we pray, Lord, that you, triune God, would be our greatest joy, our greatest hope. Now, Father, if there's any of us here who are struggling today to love you, to serve you, 
to love your church, to serve your church. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would bring us to a place where we again would see you as our great hope and our great joy, that we would love you and love your church. Our Father, we pray, Lord, help us to remove anything that would distract us from worshipping you and giving you our all. Our Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, musicians.